Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Today, we're going to focus on issues of identity, extremism, and political violence, and the role that technology plays in societies in times of conflict. First up, we speak to Hakeem Jefferson, a political scientist at Stanford University, about the underlying grievance driving the right in the United States, and how that grievance, combined with the demagoguery of the former president, disinformation, and the ability to organize at scale on social media, produced the violent assault on the Capitol on January 6th. Then, we speak to Fadi Karan, campaigns director at Avaz, a social movement that empowers people to take action on issues from corruption and poverty to conflict and climate change. I spoke to Fadi about the role of social media in the recent flare-up of violence between Israel and Palestine, and what social platforms and governments should do to protect democracy. Shortly after January 6th, Hakeem Jefferson published an essay at 538.com entitled, Storming the U.S. Capitol was about maintaining white power in America. I caught up with Hakeem earlier this week, the same week the Senate blocked deliberation on a Voting Rights Act intended to address anti-democratic measures pursued in dozens of states, justified in part by false claims of voter fraud after the 2020 election. And the same week that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced she would form a select committee to investigate January 6th, after an effort to establish a bipartisan national commission also failed in the Senate. Here's Hakeem. My name is Hakeem Jefferson. I'm an assistant professor here at Stanford University. Hakeem, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that I felt like the diagnosis that you made on January 6th in your tweets um, and very shortly thereafter in your writing really was one of the clearest diagnoses of what happened that day and why. Could you just remind listeners where your mind was as you watched the events unfold at the Capitol on January 6th? So I was sitting here at my desk. I just finished a phone call with a colleague and I had on mute my TV, which is off to the right of my desk. And I finished this Zoom call and I looked over and there were tons, it appeared to me, of white folks climbing various barricades. Uh, I believe by this point they had gotten to the door of the Capitol. And it was so striking to me, this image of rage-filled white Americans, mostly, who had traveled from across the country at some cost to ultimately do something that I had never seen, none of us had seen in our lifetimes, of course, and that is to storm the Capitol. And news reporters were talking about uh, this crazy event as I had now turned my attention fully to the television. And my mind as a scholar of race and politics who thinks a lot about questions of identity went immediately to a literature that I know uh, quite well, uh, which is to think about what would drive, what would drive this mass of folks to the Capitol to behave in this violent way. And when folks look at that, uh, there are many answers, as I noted in the piece that I would begin writing. 
minutes after turning my attention uh, to the television. There are many answers that people in my business uh, would arrive at. Uh, many, as I noted, would talk about the way that this was a function of polarization, which has increased in the U.S. in recent decades. Uh, I knew that others would talk about this is a consequence of mis and disinformation. But what was so clear to me is that this was a function of whiteness. And I want to unpack what I mean there so, so that everybody's on the same page. It was this concern, not just about having lost an election, wasn't just about Donald Trump having now uh, been evicted, ultimately, from the White House. It was about an overriding concern that white Americans have long had in the U.S. And this is a concern about power. It's a concern about the maintenance of white power and white rule, as I noted in the piece. And that was as clear as day to me. It didn't take long to write the piece or to send off the tweets because it was so immediately clear. And I don't think we've seen anything since then uh, that has made me question the argument I made uh, that day sitting here at the desk. On the other hand, I think there's been a good amount of evidence that has reinforced that, not only uh, you know, public opinion, uh, polling, but other uh, types of evidence that have amassed what have you seen since then that has bolstered your case? I think what we've seen is a continued assault across the country on voting rights, on the core tenets of democracy uh, that includes seeding ground when one has lost an election. We see Republican attempts across the country, minority rule in places where they don't have a majority of the votes. Uh, and I think all of this is evidence, certainly, of a belief in uh, the big lie, as it has uh, come to be called. Uh, but we should make no mistake. Uh, this is about an attempt to maintain a particular kind of white rule in the U.S. And I know that sounds jarring and hyperbolic to some, but these attempts to suppress the vote uh, to burden the franchise, to subvert elections, to gerrymander districts such that a minority of voters can have their policy wishes uh, rule the day. This is about race, racism. It's about the desire of some, not all, some white people in this country to maintain a kind of white rule that, that makes impossible a multiracial democracy. And that's what we saw on January the 6th. It wasn't just an attack on the Capitol. It was an attack on multiracial democracy. Uh, and I think that all the evidence that we've seen as states have passed tons of these laws that restrict or burden the franchise, all of this is part of the same play. And we should call it what it is. It's an attempt to instill and enshrine in the U.S. something that we thought we had long overcome which is permanent white rule. You are one of now, I think, more than 100 political scientists who have uh, done something slightly uncommon. You've joined a letter together to argue for the passage of a particular piece of legislation. Um, why are these experts 
all so in favor of the For the People Act? So I just want to offer a brief correction. Uh, there are now more than 800 signatories on uh, this letter, and they're political scientists who support uh, the passage of the For the People Act. And I am one of the drafters of this statement, along with my colleague, Adam Bonica, uh, who's a professor here at Stanford, Jake Grumbach, a professor at the University of Washington, and Charlotte Hill, a PhD student at Berkeley. And we were motivated to draft this letter in support of a particular piece of legislation, not, not just in support of democracy in the abstract, but in support of a particular piece of legislation, because as we write in the statement, we believe that this is a do or die moment for American democracy. Uh, we have seen, as I just noted, attempts across the country to attack voting rights, to gerrymander uh, legislative districts. Uh, we have seen attempts to subvert elections. I lived in the state of Michigan as a grad student at the University of Michigan, and I watched in awe as commissioners on the Board of Elections debated whether to certify Joe Biden's win, Joe Biden's victory. And they weren't looking to cast doubt on the votes of every jurisdiction in the state of Michigan. One commissioner noted uh, that she would, be fit, she would be in favor of confirming the results of the election, save the city of Detroit. Now, one doesn't have to have a PhD in political science or be an expert in race and politics to know what that was about. That's about taking away a fundamental right uh, that so many have fought and died for, taking away the voice of minority voters. And so we put a premium in this letter on talking about the franchise. And that's not all that the For the People Act does. It has things in there about campaign finance and increasing uh, the kind of ethical accountability for members of Congress. It has provisions that would do away with extreme partisan gerrymandering. It would create a floor for, for voting in this country. And we spend a lot of time talking about voting rights because voting rights are so fundamental to democracy. And this has been a key area where Republicans have chipped away this fundamental right. And we believe uh, that this is an inflection point in this country. We believe that time is running out for those in positions of power to do something about the attacks on the franchise, uh, the uh, attempts at enshrining minority rule, but time is running out to do something about that. And so I think uh, we have gotten so many signatories on this letter, which is in support of, of a particular piece of legislation, because they, like those of us who drafted the statement, understand that the stakes are incredibly high. And perhaps I sound alarmist in our conversation because I think it is a moment in which we should all be alarmed. The right to vote is preservative, as Chief Justice Earl Warren said, of all other civil rights. The right to vote is fundamental. And I think a number of political scientists recognize uh, both the history of this country and where we're headed if members of Congress don't move urgently to pass this piece of legislation. So you brought up a couple of things I'd like to dig into just a bit more. You brought up the big lie, um, the idea that false voter fraud claims 
uh, were circulated certainly by the president, but by also by other political elites, over 100 Republican members of Congress, uh, for instance, uh, joined in, in making those claims. And in some cases, uh, even valorized what happened on January 6th. What do you make of where we've got to in this country right now on perceptions of, of January 6th, what happened that day? Of course, the conspiracy theories continue to thrive. And you know, there's, there's a kind of full-on effort at this point to sort of almost erase or, or rewrite what happened. Um, what do you make of, of what's happened since that day? It's such a good question. And perhaps I'll draw a connection, a seemingly odd connection, perhaps at the start to ongoing conversations about whatever the hell people mean when they talk about critical race theory. Most folks don't know what that is, but they know at its core, there's a truth telling about America. They might not know the ins and outs of critical race theory, the opponents of critical race theory, but they at least have enough of a sense that there's something that something that's unsettling about the story these legal scholars and those of us who read and, and believe some of the core tenets of critical race theory, uh, the arguments that we might make about the embeddedness of race and legal institutions and the like, the embeddedness of race and racism, I should say, in these legal institutions. And there's been this attempt in recent weeks to tell a different story, to bury Nicole Hannah-Jones's brilliant 1619 project at the New York Times, to ban the teaching of these topics in public schools. And so we have, or at least some of us in this country, have this almost uh, amazing and awesome ability to retell aspects of history that lay bare some unsettling facts about who we are. And so what we have seen, and we saw it almost immediately following uh, the events of January the 6th, but we've certainly seen it more and more as time has gone on, there's a retelling of what we all saw with our own eyes. We saw a mass of white folks carrying the flag of the Confederacy, wearing Nazi insignia, carrying Trump flags, carrying the American flag, which they had weaponized and many have weaponized as a symbol of white rule, white power. We have seen that. We saw it with our own eyes. But there is, it's almost laughable that we could watch this as I did, and I'm sure many of you did. We watched it, and now there's a different story. It was Antifa, it was Black Lives Matter activists. Uh, they were just tourists looking to check out the beauty of the Capitol. I mean, there's really, there's no, there's no place they won't go uh, with the tale. And I think the scary part is there are many Americans willing to believe it. And they're willing to believe it for reasons that political scientists have documented. The reason they're willing to believe it because it maps onto core identities, partisan identities, for example. Political elites have told them that it's true. And these are political elites they like, like the former president. Uh, and so I'm not so surprised that so many are willing to believe these lies. I mean, Many believed the lie that Barack Obama wasn't born in this country or that he was 
a Muslim, and all of these kinds of lies. But to the retelling of January the 6th, it is merely the way that we operate as Americans when we are unsettled by hard truths. And I think the task for those of us who are in the business of telling the truth, regardless of how uncomfortable it is, is to keep telling people what actually happened. And that's why it was so important for me to get into the conversation immediately, because I had a good sense of what I saw. And I wanted other people uh, to get that sense too. And so I think the hard work for, for those of us who recognize the lies are being told about this stuff is to do what I'm doing right now, which is to talk to, talk to folks with platforms and audiences who might be persuaded uh, by the arguments we make. I focus on technology and media um, yep. and the relationship to democracy. And one of the things that we've talked about here, of course, is the spread of lies. And a lot of folks have looked after the fact, of course, at the media and information ecosystem. And certainly on social media, a lot of folks are concerned about the fact that our platforms seem to value uh, the valence of information over its veracity. Um, and that, of course, is perhaps, as you say, because that is what all the individuals that are on the platforms do. What, what do you make of the information ecosystem, its role in this? Is it simply a mirror to what's going on in society more broadly in your mind? Or is it playing a role in exacerbating the situation? I'll start uh, by noting that this isn't my space of greatest expertise. But I will say this, I think it's both. And it is a reflection of what is happening in the world. I often tell folks that we should be careful in making pronouncements about what the state of public opinion is, for example, based on what we see in our timelines, uh, especially uh, if you're a member of the academy. Uh, you should be careful to, <laughs> to not assume that, that most folks think the way that you think. But we have seen the tweets of those who support the former president. We have seen uh, the messages of a fellow Republican. Uh, and we know uh, that it reflects a core belief. But more than just reflecting, I think, who we are, there is an ability to spread information, unlike any other time in the world. Uh, I can send off a tweet, and it's seen by more people than we'll ever read any paper that I write. And that has its benefits for sure, particularly for those of us in the ideas business. Uh, but it comes, I think, with some costs. Everybody can be a journalist. Everybody can be a storyteller. And, and there's so little barrier to entry. And there are few checks. Uh, and as one who believes that most speech, uh, even bad speech, should exist on these platforms, it makes me nervous to think about the way that folks across the country can be mobilized by tweets that say that this election was stolen, stolen, or that there's something nefarious that's happening at the vote counting center, of course, in some majority minority area, right? The fact that you can, you can gather people in ways that you could never before. I think these are all things that platform managers and technology companies uh, have to be thinking about. This is way above my pay grade, but as a student of race, 
and identity. Uh, one of the things that I do know is that identity weaponized is quite dangerous. When people believe that core identities are under threat, they become mobilized in ways that are scary, for lack of a better word. And I think what many on the right have done and continue to do, I'm thinking about folks like Tom Cotton, for example. What these folks do is that they stir the pot. They tell people in these online spaces where everything can go viral, they tell them that your identity is under threat, that you should be afraid of these people who are coming to our shores. You should be afraid that your country is being taken away from you. And so I think that places like Facebook and Twitter have to be in conversation uh, with those of us who understand how dangerous this stuff is. And I'm not calling for greater policing of speech necessarily, but at the very least, there has to be an understanding of what happens when people engage this kind of information. And what happens, unfortunately, in its most violent form is what we saw on January the 6th. And I think we've moved too quickly away from this. I'm bad with time, but we're, what, six months away from this event. And already, already it's fallen to the wayside in so many people's thinking. Even as you were asking me to have this conversation about January the 6th, one of the thoughts I had was, that seems so long ago. That seems... So out of, out of the news, like, what are, we, what are we doing here? But it should be headline news every day. We should still be talking about it. And it's so crazy that, that we aren't. That kind of leads me, um, I suppose, in, into my next question, which is really the social media platforms on some level have said, you know, we'll make our decision about whether to let Donald Trump back on this platform when we believe that we can assess whether the danger has passed. So Facebook yeah. has pushed him off for two years and then said they'll, they'll assess the situation at that time. YouTube still may uh, let him back on when they assess that the danger has passed. Twitter, of course, has pushed him off permanently. How, how would you answer that question if, if Susan Wojcicki from YouTube was in the room with us or, or Mark Zuckerberg? Has the danger passed? I don't think we've seen any evidence of that. I think it's a good question. Uh, I, I too read this and I wondered, uh, what does it mean uh, that the danger has passed? I mean, we have a significant portion of this country that believes the lie that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. They believed it so much that they stormed the capital of the United States. They continue along with elite support, to tell this lie. And I haven't seen a weakening of the belief. Sure, ultimately, uh, Republican elites will go on to media and say, well, uh, Joe Biden's the president, end of story. It's not the end of the story. There is a core constituency in this country for racial resentment, a core constituency for the politics of white identity, and a core constituency opposed to the tenets of multiracial democracy. Unless I've missed something, none of that has changed since January the 6th. My sense is that we're actually moving into this period 
this conversations about critical race theory, this 19 project, and all of this, which too, by the way, is about whiteness. It's about a desire to protect oneself against a different kind of threat, kind of identity threat to deal with what are the negative uh, stereotypes and the like that attach to whiteness. Uh, but we have, I think, a perfect storm for exactly the kind of thing that we saw on January the 6th. And I, I say that again, not to be alarmist, but if you're paying attention, little has changed. Congress hasn't even gotten on the same page with respect to investigating what happened on January the 6th. So no, I don't think I don't think the dangers have passed. And I think we are too certain that because of how wild it was, that it can't happen again in some form or another. And I guess I'm just not quite there yet. You mentioned the sort of separation of this concept of polarization from this underlying grievance. I personally accept the idea that the underlying grievance that drives this asymmetric polarization uh, on the right is this white grievance, this, this identity right grievance. Do you see any efficacy in trying to um, address polarization or address asymmetric polarization? Or do you think we should be more full in simply on addressing this underlying issue? I really think this is a hard question. I've been reading the polarization research for sometimes since I was in graduate school. And with great respect to my colleagues, I really don't know if political scientists have, have gotten the best sense that so much of what motivates this polarization is not just a difference in policy attitudes or even what we call affective polarization, this idea that people on one side just don't like people on the other side. And perhaps this is an intellectual bias of my own, but underlying, I think, some of the core motivation of the right in this country is a commitment to a kind of racial order that has been, in the eyes of many, disrupted. And so I walk through in, in the 538 essay uh, this idea that we talk a lot about in political science uh, that relates to a theory of group position. And I won't bore listeners with a, with a long read of group position theory, but the core argument of this theory advanced by Herbert Bloomer, a noted sociologist back in the 1950s, is this argument that those exist at the top of a social hierarchy, and we're thinking about race in particular, really want to maintain that position, right? Uh, that's, that's the core thrust of the theory. And insofar as we care about racism and the like, we needn't just think about the hearts and minds of, of white people. We need to think about what it is their desires are. What is the desire of one who exists in this position of such great privilege? It is to maintain that power and that position. And so I can't make sense of American politics without thinking about this as a core feature of the belief set, of the politics of many white Americans. Not all white Americans, so don't write in to me about all white Americans, but for many white Americans, a core 
tenet of the belief structure is this desire to maintain power and position. And so you can't understand American politics without thinking about that, nor can you understand uh, polarization uh, without thinking about it. And so you ask me an impossible question, which is what to do about it? Where should we focus our attention? Because I study what is seemingly an intractable problem in this country, the problem of American racism, I always acknowledge the progress that we've made thanks in large part to activists on the ground. But I will admit that at the core of my own beliefs is not the desire to spend a lot of my own time trying to change hearts and minds. I think that's important work, important persuasion work. But I think we should be interested in designing systems that don't rely on the goodwill of good people. And so that's why I, along with my colleague, uh, drafted the letter in support of H.R. 1. It's why I think, as my colleague uh, Jake Grumbach and his work that thinks about the way that democracy is backsliding in the states, thinks that there's a role, a significant role for federal power and elections and the like. That's why I care about a voting rights act that, that holds accountable states that want to burden the franchise. Because though I study public opinion and I'm an expert in public opinion, my own strong beliefs as one who cares about justice is that we spend so much time thinking about hearts and minds and less about the real work of politics, which is to make it impossible for members of Congress to say no to what is good policy uh, that would strengthen American democracy. So that's where I think efforts ought to be spent. Now this question of whether we should spend our time trying to get white people to not be so strongly attached to their racial identity or not so attached to their desire for power, privilege, and all that comes along with that. I think we have to do some of that hard work to stop these people uh, who would go storm the Capitol. But I really think our effort uh, would be better spent uh, working to advance the cause of justice through policy that changes the structure so that we're not so dependent on the goodwill of these folks in the first place. So I don't want to try to shoehorn this then back to media and tech, um, but I wonder if there isn't something there also for tech executives who are thinking about how to design massive systems that you know channel discourse and dialogue and, and debate uh, yep. on some level, um, and if they shouldn't be thinking that way as well. I think these companies have to ask themselves at what cost. Uh, and, and this is what we sign up for in liberal democracy for expansive speech, speech that makes me cringe, speech that makes me uncomfortable, speech that I would not express uh, myself or even surround myself with folks who would. I, I wanna stake my position as a strong defender of speech, even bad speech. And this won't come as a surprise to your smart audience, but no right is absolute. And these platforms, though uh, I think they perceive of themselves as democracy-enhancing institutions, they have to think about the balance between providing a space where anything goes or in caring about other tenets of democracy. 
free and fair elections, the rights of the most marginalized. And these rights are often at tension with one another. And so there is no easy answers. I tell my students all the time, and you'll forgive me or you'll edit this out, uh, but shit's complicated. Uh, and so I, I don't want to pretend that there's an easy answer to this very hard question. But I think more than they have, media elite, social media executives have to be thinking about the trade-offs. The stakes could not be higher. And I think that is what was laid bare on January the 6th. And we've seen some changes. I mean, Facebook now has this board that uh, looks and checks out and decides what to do about this or that. But they've got to decide sort of what speech are we not willing to platform. As uh, these tech execs remind us often, they are private organizations, private entities. The protections that I have about speech are protections from government intrusion on that speech. And of course, we want these platforms to be as democracy enhancing and the like as they want, but to lean on this idea that to police speech on these platforms is beyond the pale is to an overly simple answer uh, to a hard question. And so I, I don't have the answer today, but I think it requires that these folks uh, have good sense of American history, uh, that they have a good sense of what the stakes are. And these stakes are real. I mean, the civil rights movement isn't that distant uh, from us. Uh, and the kind of backsliding that we're experiencing right now is real. And so I think folks like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and others have to ask themselves, sort of what side of history do I want to be on? Uh, and I think that is the question uh, that should animate uh, the decisions uh, that they make. Uh, and, and they're used to making hard choices. They make choices that I sometimes don't agree with. They're willing to restrict rights in countries where they want market. That's a, that's a decision that I I think is troublesome. And so they have to stop pretending uh, that the easy answer is just to say, we support speech, uh, period. Uh, because that's as easy as saying ban the speech in the first place. And so it's complicated, uh, but I'm heartened at least uh, that perhaps one of the silver linings, though I think there are none to what we witnessed, is that perhaps these folks, who I think are often very smart in the domain of tech, but have a loose handle on the realities of American history, uh, perhaps they have been brought up to speed in some way or another. So at least this trade-off is clearer to them than it was, say, on January 5. Hakeem Jefferson, thank you very much. Thanks, man. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press/podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. Next up, we speak with Fadi Kuran, campaigns director at Avaz. On the 21st of May, a ceasefire was agreed between Israel and the Palestinian militant group Hamas after 11 days of fighting, which left nearly 300 people dead. 
Most of those killed were Palestinians in the territory of Gaza. The violence in May followed a month of rising tensions in Jerusalem. Fadi, who lives in Ramallah, has studied and campaigned around problems related to the social media platforms, such as disinformation, for years, and I caught up with him about his experience there and what it tells him about the broader global picture. Here's Fadi. My name is Fadi Quran. I am a campaigns director at Abbas, and I lead our kind of global anti-disinformation work. And where are you right now? I am currently in Ramallah, in Palestine, in the occupied territories. Tell me what your experience has been like over the last month. What, what has happened in your life and in your neighborhood? It's, I mean, I don't know where to start because last month feels like uh, a decade. Um, but the, to try and put it together, essentially what we faced um, across both the West Bank and Gaza was just an expansion of violence that started in Jerusalem because there's an effort to essentially dispossess, ethnically cleanse a neighborhood called Sheikh Jarrah, um, which is kind of where many Palestinian families live. And protests began erupting in Jerusalem and then spread uh, in my neighborhood, you know, just, just a few hundred meters away from where I am. Uh, three young men uh, were killed in the last month um, at, at protests. They were shot by the Israeli army. Um, in Gaza, of course, the, the situation was much worse than the West Bank. Uh, there was significant uh, bombing. Over 240 people have been killed. Um, at night, we would see the, the rockets and Israel's iron, basically iron dome kind of clash in the sky um, all over the hills. And so... It's been a, I would say, a very, very significant uh, crisis. But the key thing to add is it's still continuing. Um, as we speak, you know, today there were settler attacks near where I live um, on, on specific communities. Uh, dozens of my activist friends have been arrested. It's, you know, what you would, Human Rights Watch just recently called the situation apartheid. So for those familiar to what was happening in South Africa, um, it's kind of similar here. In your work, in your research, um, you look at a variety of topics, but one of them is, is social media and technology. And I want to talk today a little bit about the relationship uh, between tech and what's happened on social networks and what you've experienced there. Maybe first, just for the listeners, a little background on your, your prior work on, on social platforms and their relationship to society. Interestingly enough, in this kind of moment, Part of the, the struggle uh, of what happened in Israel-Palestine was on social media. And specifically, uh, what you saw is that, you know, within Palestine, uh, the majority of the population are youth. You're talking between 70 to 75 percent are under the age of 30. And so a lot of the, the activism, a lot of the organizing, a lot of the mobilization that happens, happens on social media. And it's a defense mechanism for Palestinians. And I think this is important to mention where people feel that the more we bring global attention to what we're facing, the less violent uh, the Israeli military occupation would be against us. So you have people documenting everything that's happening. You have people organizing protests and sharing them. You have people putting up petitions. And what happened, especially as the violence escalated in Jerusalem, was suddenly 
especially on Facebook and Instagram, but also on other platforms, you saw a kind of huge amounts of censorship, kind of certain mechanisms came into play where tens of thousands of Palestinian posts just began being taken down for very unclear reasons, including, um, you know, there were protests that then the Israeli forces went into the Aqsa Mosque, uh, which is kind of considered a holy ground for Muslims and for other religions. And uh, the term Al-Aqsa, the hashtag, something happened on Instagram where anyone using that term of that location, uh, the, the posts were taken down or covered. And Facebook later said that, and that it was a glitch. But throughout this period, throughout this month, uh, these types of glitches kept happening where Palestinian content was taken down. Meanwhile, on, on the other hand, on the Israeli side, um, what we saw was that the Israeli far right, the, the settler movements in particular, especially when there were kind of uh, certain lynchings and violence on the streets, were using uh, social media platforms, mainly WhatsApp in this case, but also Facebook, to organize um, some of this violence. And so long story short, it's, um, you, know, you can think about what happened during the kind of insurrection um, in the US and you can think about fail Facebook's failures throughout the 2020 elections. And you can kind of, I would say, to some extent multiply that by five in terms of uh, the type of failures that happened on the ground here during this moment. And because there's a polarization, and I think this is what the, the expert audience uh, listening to us will care about, Essentially, there's a, there's a cyber unit within the Israeli um, government, within the Israeli kind of official structure. One of their goals, and this is public knowledge, is that they, they monitor Palestinian content and report it consistently to Facebook. And the former Israeli justice minister kind of proudly said that Facebook takes down about 95% of the stuff that the Israeli government shares with them. And Facebook is feeding this data based on what the Israeli government thinks is problematic into its AI systems. And you can imagine what happens when these, these machine learning systems are learning based on biased data of what the Israeli government thinks is okay or not okay. Whereas on the Palestinian side, there's no capacity on that front. So you see the complete imbalance of, of power and that leads to an unjust uh, information ecosystem. So you're giving us a, a sense of not just a sort of you know, set of choices that the platform is making, uh, but also the way that the asymmetric nature of the resources that the the, the governments in this case have um, leads to a different a differential outcome. Um, is there any organized effort among the Palestinians to work with Facebook or to counter this particular activity? I mean, there, especially in this last month, of course, those, those efforts came into play. So there are a bunch of human rights organizations, uh, local digital rights organizations that are, you know, kind of now engaging with Facebook to, to fix these problems. The, the core issue, though, is that there's real little transparency at Facebook um, at large. What this means is, for example... Um, a key figure when it comes to content decisions and policy decisions in, on Israel-Palestine is, is a woman named Jordana Cutler that works at Facebook, and she leads Facebook's kind of uh, 
policy team as relates to Israel and the Jewish diaspora. She's a former, um, she was on Benjamin Netanyahu's campaign, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's campaign. She's a former strategic communications person uh, within the Israeli government. And so you can see how somebody like that having significant power in a company like Facebook dwarfs um, the type of influence that let's say Palestinian civil society can have on the conversation. And it remains unclear for us exactly how Facebook is making its decisions on these issues. So is it based on pressure from the Israeli government? Is it based on internal relations? Um, Is it based on uh, the fact that their moderators are not experts in the conflict and so don't know how to make decisions on what to keep up and what not to keep on? There are all these gaps. And so Facebook has been trying to cooperate more with Palestinian civil society. They have a good you know, team on that front, but it's just the level of engagement is, is completely dwarfed when it comes to the type of influence Israel has on the company. One of the things I'm aware of is that Facebook set up a, a kind of special operations center to deal with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in this past month. And we know that Nick Clegg, Facebook's vice president of public policy, and uh, Joel Kaplan, another executive there, met with the Israeli government and reportedly with the Palestinian Authority as well. Are you aware of those meetings or what outcomes might have come out of them? Was there any local reporting on it? Yeah, there was some local reporting on it. And it seemed, you know, Facebook mostly repeated its kind of tried and tested promises of you know saying sorry for any mistakes that we committed, we're doing our best. This is how our, our moderation policies work. There, there was no kind of significant outcomes, um, I would say, from the meetings on the Palestinian side. On the Israeli side, um, I have less clarity on that front. But what I would like to point out here is that the problems are continuing. So yes, the, the you know the, the media wave has disappeared when in the US particularly, but the type of violations happening on the ground here, including by Facebook just two days ago, a Palestinian politician's account was removed off of Facebook and a, a well-respected Palestinian news source, which is the, it's called the Quds Network on Instagram, was taken down um, and it was reinstated after Palestinian civil society complained and went to Facebook. But what that showed us was that the same underlying dynamics that led to the, you know, it's gone beyond censorship, honestly, to becoming digital oppression of this content and have not changed. That's what we're trying to do. It's important also, like Facebook has some very important decisions that should be coming up, right? So decisions on the term, you know, Zionism, and how criticism of, of or you know how how that term or Zionist specifically how the platform moderates content around that, and it's a this is a very complicated issue, right? Because you can be, you know, someone in the U.S. can use the term Zionist, for example, to push anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic uh, slurs on one hand, but in Palestine, when I say something like you know, the the Zionist forces have stolen the water resources from my home. And, you know, that's that's the truth. Like, that's literally what's happening. There's a settlement next to me. You know, they, they claim this and they're taking water and shooting at us. And so you can see how if someone 
you know, if the Proud Boys post something um, about Zionists, it could be anti-Semitism. If a Palestinian post the exact same content in Arabic, speaking about their daily experience, it's not anti-Semitism, it's life experience. How's Facebook going to deal with this? And, and this is an issue that is kind of on their agenda right now. And the same thing with other terms. And where, where, I, where I'm going with this conversation, though, is the bigger picture, which is in the U.S., people, when they talk about Palestine, Israel, for many, it's seen as a topic that's maybe complicated or something that they don't want to touch. But the kind of discussion around the, the digital rights and the types of decisions Facebook are, is making here, how it impacts the information ecosystem, equally apply to things related to, for example, African-American and white relations in the U.S., you know, apply to like Muslims in India and other minorities in India and the Modi government, apply to, you know, dozens of contexts around the world that, you know, in the end, this company is literally defining the political discourse and how loud the political discourse is in one direction or another based on arbitrary measures as they currently stand. And no matter how much Facebook um, claims to be professional about it, what we saw in, in the last conflict is that they're still far from doing a good job um, at, at dealing with the situation. In a recent uh, congressional testimony, a Facebook executive uh, you know, admitted as much that you know, when it uses these break-the-glass measures, as it's referred to it uh, in the United States, that typically what happens is, is unanticipated or uh, unintended uh, censorship or uh, effort against the effort that restricts free expression. So to some extent, the company is aware that when it, I guess, goes into overdrive to, from its perspective, attempt to enforce its terms of service against violent content or other, other infractions against its, its, its rules, um, that typically what happens is that things get taken down that shouldn't. What do you think it should do? I mean, what, what would you have Facebook do in this, in this situation, uh, or Twitter, or, or YouTube, for that matter, uh, or TikTok, which played a significant role in, in this last month? This, this is a kind of important question. I think the first step um, that I would do for all these companies, and, and it's, it's more urgent now than ever, is conduct an independent human rights um, audit on how the platform engages um, with key, you know, I would start with priority conflict zones across the world and hot zones across the world, but then do it, you know, expansively. I would put, you know, a huge, you know, a significant amount of resources in doing that because without having an independent deep audit done by professionals, by experts outside the company with, with full transparency and access to, to how the algorithms function, we will not know, and this is from conversations I've had with individuals that, you know, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, you know, they, they say the right things, they're intelligent people, but oftentimes when you get to the crux of the matter, they do not understand how their platforms are engaging and harming and, and playing with public discourse at this moment. So I would start with that step. The, the second step after the audit would be kind of hiring uh, specific broader teams that can execute on, on the recommendations. Uh, but last but not least, I would say that these platforms should not have uh, this amount of power on discourse uh, and on all the political narrative, whether that's in the US or whether that's uh, in the Middle East. And so I think regulation is key. 
And fortunately, the EU is now moving on some smart regulation in this direction. I hope the US can move as well. Um, The investigation and the insurrection, I think, can can open a door in kind of getting traction on on that direction and figuring out what regulation is needed uh, to protect individuals around the world. You and I have written together on the importance of the January 6th investigation. Um, Maybe just explain a little bit more about why you see such a parallel uh, between you know, what your concerns are there in the West Bank and your concerns about January 6th. Why, why is that a parallel in your mind? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. And it was honestly like a, a pleasure, you know, discussing this with you on the previous time we connected uh, because you, you brought such wisdom to the conversation. And the, the parallels here are at the core, what these platforms allow for um, and what they weaponize towards is extremists, politicians with significant financial resources who are populists, whether that's Netanyahu or Trump, at the far right, these platforms create the fertile soil and the networking paths for these actors to move society towards violence and particularly violence targeting the most vulnerable communities in our societies. So the Proud Boys, the way they organized on social media, and I, you know, I, for, for about a year, I was monitoring these actors with our team out of us ahead of the US elections. The, the way they were functioning and acting online is almost the exact replica of the way the kind of Israeli far-right and other extremist actors here were functioning online uh, during this escalation and before then. Same type of posting tactics, same types of memes, same types of language around dehumanization and so forth. And where I see the parallels here is that these platforms are an infrastructure for radicalization and um, democratic destruction. That's, that's how they function today. Um, and if we don't fix that quickly, we will keep going in that downward spiral towards um, this kind of democratic failure and towards these systems of segregation um, and apartheid and oppression uh, that, that are starting to take hold uh, in some places around the world. If you look at Brazil today, if you look at India uh, if you look at Israel, if you look at you know, a bunch of different nations, you see how social media is playing a role in the consolidation. And the last thing I will add is, and this, this is so crucial um, because we're speaking here to a mostly American audience. In the U.S., during these elections, the amount of resources that civil society, that brave journalists, you know, um, and academics like yourself and others put to defend the U.S. election from these threats of disinformation, there were huge resources. You know, I'd say tens of thousands of people were fighting this battle. These resources don't exist in Palestine, where I am now. You know, I can, I can, there, there's no New York Times journalist focused on disinformation be 24-7 trying to fight disinformation here the same way there was in the U.S. There, there are no journalists here doing that. Civil society organizations, um, you know, there are very few functioning here. So even if in the U.S., uh, through the civil society effort and also through other kind of government efforts and so forth, we managed to 
um, avoid the worst, even though the insurrection was bad, avoid something worse than the insurrection by pushing back. Other places around the world just don't have those resources. And that's why I think, you know, even though there are similarities, the U.S. is actually um, well ahead of other countries in terms of how to deal with tech platforms, at least in terms of civil society. And uh, kind of figuring out, learning from the insurrection and figuring out solutions um, to, to the problems within tech platforms in the U.S. will help us solve these problems um, elsewhere. Patty, thank you so much. No, thank you, Justin. It's a pleasure always. That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.